we're in the book of John. I just want to review real quick because we're at the end of John chapter 14. Now, remember in John 13, we started with uh, Jesus sitting down. They're having supper they're around this table, and, and, and they're, they're, Jesus is teaching them. He knows he's about to die, so this is, in essence, his last words, right? So you think about what those would be for a person, their last words, how important they would be. This is why this is so important. This is why we were moving through John at a fairly reasonable pace, and then we hit John 13 and 14, and we've slowed down because we don't want to miss anything that Jesus has for us. Because what is he teaching the disciples right now? He's teaching them how to go out as the church and impact the world. That's what he's teaching them. And so everything he's teaching them applies to us. We're still a part of the church going out and impacting the world. And so all of this, so in, in, in verses one through three, we talked about this a number of weeks ago. We talked about this confidence that we would need if we were gonna navigate life successfully and the confidence that's available to us to do that. We talked about the nature of the confidence. What is that? It is a home that we have a deep longing for. We talked about that whole idea. People always say, it doesn't matter what the destination is, enjoy the journey. And that sounds really good, unless you actually need to get somewhere. Because the destination determines and informs the journey. When you know your destination, it changes the way the journey is for you. Finally, we said, how do we get that confidence? Jesus talked about that, this idea of belief, learning to trust him. We talked about that and how that's a lifelong process. Then as we move through John, we talked in four, four through six, we talked about that it's a relationship. The way to the Father is a relationship, not a set of rules to follow. It's truth in life, now and in the future. He is the giver of life and he is the meaning of life. Jesus said, I'm the journey and I'm the destination. It's exclusive and inclusive. That is, life comes through Jesus and is open to all. Then as we moved into seventh, verses 7 through 11, we had that famous saying, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. What is he saying? He's saying the cry of every human heart. I want to meet, I want to see the divine. I want to know that my life is wrapped up in something that's way bigger than me. Show me the Father, and it will be enough. It will be enough. Talked about a, a famous um, author, Julian Barnes, and uh, he writes about this extensively. He's an atheist, and he writes about this, and one of the interesting things he says is he talks, he talks about what he calls the haunting hypothetical of the non-believer. He says, when I hear something, I hear beautiful music. I see, I see beautiful art, poetry, stories, movies, things that move you. He said, especially when I hear things that are religiously themed, he talks about listening to some of Mozart's uh, Requiem, which talks about the death of a person going to meet God. And he said, I'm haunted by the, this thought. What if it's true? What if it's true? And he said, because it is what my heart cries for. It's what my heart cries for. And what if it's true? And basically what he says is his life as an atheist is telling his heart, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. That's all he does. He just tells his heart how wrong he is. And his heart says, I don't know. What if it's true? I don't know. It's the cry of his heart. And Jesus said, it comes through seeing me. He says, if you know me, you will know my father. You see me, you will see my father. 
and I will be enough. We're all looking for enough. He talks about seeing, he talks about believing, that relational word, believing that I am who he says I am. In 14, 12 to 15, we talked about the mission we have been called to, and we talked about the power that we have at our disposal, the power of prayer, which we're just talking about now, that power. In 14 to 26, he talks about the Holy Spirit. He talks about what the Holy Spirit does. He teaches us, he befriends us, he empowers us. And we talked about that power, the power of love to change hearts, to change people from the inside out. I can show you, I know of tons and tons of people who say Jesus came into my life and my life has been radically changed for the good. I don't know of many people who say, I quit believing in God and now I feel so much better about it. I might feel better about being under some oppressive system, but it didn't change me from the inside out. I don't see that. And so he talks about this power that's available to us because of the Holy Spirit, the other advocate, he says. And he uses that word other advocate because there's two. There's the Spirit and there's Jesus. He is our advocate. And we talked about this last week. He is our advocate in the courtroom where Satan, the accuser, comes and accuses us of something. And Jesus says, Father, it would be unjust to punish Bob for that because it's already been paid for. And that's why 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Not faithful and merciful. It's not mercy. It's justice. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins because you can't have double jeopardy. Those sins have been paid for. So now we move into the last part of chapter 14, and I want to read it for you. Verses 27 through 31. You can read along in your Bibles, on your phones if you have it, or you can just listen. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what the Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. So Jesus now, he's wrapping up this part. He's going to continue. It's very interesting how this flows if you think about it. He's, they're at that, the, the dinner, and then he says, come now, let us leave. Now they're going to walk across this valley. They're going to go to Gethsemane. We call it the Garden of Gethsemane, but it probably was not really a garden. Uh, the word Gethsemane. Oh, man, now I'm getting way ahead of myself. We'll, we'll, we'll get to, well, you got to know. The word Gethsemane is the word for that crushing stone that they would crush olives with to get the olive oil out of. That stone, which sometimes would be five or six feet high, two or three feet across on each side, and it would be lowered on bags, and it would just crush them. They'd leave it there, they'd leave it there for days, and it would be crushed crush out the olive oil, and they would collect it, right? That stone is called a Gethsemane. That's what it's called. Think about that. The garden where Jesus prayed and the scriptures tell us he was horrified at what was coming. It was really literally the garden of crushing. It was very appropriate. 
And they're walking there. Imagine this. They're walking there at the end of this. Jesus knows exactly where he's walking. He knows exactly what he's walking into. All right. So he's going to talk about peace here. This is, this is important to us. Very important to us. We need peace. We need peace. Now, the disciples are anxious. They're fearful. He, he tells them, he says, don't be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled, right? Don't be afraid. Uh, that word troubled can be this idea of being torn, being torn in different directions, being torn up. Um, anxiety is from that same root word of being torn. And he says this multiple times in this, in this, uh, this sermon, this teaching at the, at the table there. They're anxious. They're fearful. Because, you, you know, think about it. Think of all, all the stuff they've just heard. They've heard this talk of betrayal that just shakes them to the core, but they don't know if they quite understand it. Then Judas leaves abruptly, which is puzzling to them and concerning. Peter, there's talk of Peter denying, which is, is kind of scary. There's talk of imminent death that's just so confusing and scary. And Jesus is talking with this air, uh, this kind of sense of finality. Things are ending now. And they're like, what? We thought it was just beginning. Like the kingdom, let's go, Right? And so the context here is fear, it's apprehension, it's confusion. And we know those feelings. We know what it is to lose sleep. We know what it is to fear. We know what it is to feel helpless at times. Anxiety is a tremendous issue in our world. Fear for our health, fear for our wealth, fear for our, our, our physical uh, well-being, uh, fear for... Uh, our children, our kids, fear for people that we're in relationships with. You know, when circumstances are good, we feel at peace. We feel comfortable. Earlier, you know, in Jesus' ministry, there were these miracles, and there was, you know, miracles and healing and wine. Woohoo! this is awesome, right? This is great, Jesus. Go, go, go. Jesus, Jesus, he's our man. You can, they, life is good. But then things get bad. Just like us, things get bad in our life. Circumstances get bad and we struggle. We're just like the disciples. We're no different from them. And there's lots of kinds of fear. You can, each of us, it's different. The things that we may fear. Some may fear the loss of reputation. Somehow people will think that I'm insignificant. Or maybe I'll think that I'm insignificant. Somehow I won't be impressive in real life as I am on Facebook. We fear speaking the truth in difficult situations, maybe in professional situations, maybe in personal situations. What will the repercussions be if I speak the truth to these people? And we get a little worried about that. We fear the loss of comfort, financial or medical or relationally. We fear the loss of control. This is why so many people struggle with committing to anything. We fear for physical safety. We fear death. And much of this is bound up in that whole idea of loss of control. And here, the disciples, you know, it's like things are going great. There's been crowds. There's been power. The future looks bright. And they're like, wait, why are you leaving? What are you talking about? Death? We can't go on without you. Imagine what that, that's the turmoil they're going through. We experience that turmoil in our lives times, at times, too. It may be in different things and in different ways, but it's a commonality that we all have. And in the midst of this, 
Jesus says there's peace. There is peace. So let's talk about that. What is this peace? He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. It's a different kind of peace. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. You heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. The Greek word for peace here is irene. Now, what's interesting about this word is this is the word that the, that, that the Jews picked to be the comparable, comparable word with the Hebrew word shalom, which is a very important word to them. And so picking this word for peace is very important because shalom is more than just peace. It's a wholeness. It's a fullness. It's a flourishing, flourishing socially, flourishing emotionally, flourishing relationally, flourishing spiritually. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you peace, not as the world gives. I'm going to give you shalom. The world can't give you shalom. Now, when he says peace to those people in that day and age, and this is where it's so important oftentimes that we jump, we get back in the culture, that culture, what did they think of when they thought about peace? The big thing that was ringing in their ears would be this idea of shalom, and on the opposite side would be what was called the Pax Romana. Pax Romana is the peace of Rome. For over 200 years, there's a, a period of time where what was called the peace of Rome ruled the known world. Right? They were, they, Rome had this peace going on, and things flourished, especially financially. It was called the peace of Rome. It was a significant time where there was political peace and there was financial peace in the known world. Political peace in that there were very few major wars. There was uprisings and there were all kinds of things going on, but major, major wars in the world kind of were, were very rare in that time. So it was called the peace of Rome. But here's the thing. It was a peace that comes at a cost. It was a peace that comes at the point of a sword. It came through power. It came through subjugation. It was a peace, and get this, it was a peace through fear. I'm not going to do this because this is what the Romans will do. And, and we see that happening as we read um, the Gospels, right? Remember when Jesus enters and, 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 the, and the, all the Jewish leaders come and say, you need to tell these people to be quiet. Because if the Romans hear this, this could cause trouble. Why did they say that? Because it had happened before. We know of at least two major incidents. One of them, the Romans, they heard all this noise. They looked down. They thought a revolt was brewing in the temple. So they surrounded the temple, sealed it off, and a Roman legion marched in and slaughtered everyone in the temple. Right? So, so what is that? That's peace, but at a high price, peace through fear. It's still the way we seek peace today. Why have we not had a nuclear war since 1950? Mad, mutual, assured destruction. That's what's going on now, keeping the peace. We have mutually assured our enemies that they will be annihilated if they try to annihilate us. Mutual assured destruction. So what is that? That's peace through fear. We're afraid of this. Afraid to use that bomb. Afraid to use that weapon. 
And I'm glad. I'm not, I don't think I'm, you know, putting it down. But it, it happens. It works. It works all the way down to the smallest things. Right? Why do people obey the law? Generally speaking, why don't, why don't you go 100 miles an hour on 64 if you wanted to? And I know a couple of you are going, uh, I do. All right, well, why? Because of the police. Arrest, detention, taking away your driver's privileges. That's fear, right? You're afraid of what the consequences would be. And it works. It works to a certain extent. The other day I was heading to Williamsburg. Everybody's scooting along, speed limit along that section before they're in Newport News. is 65, I think. So everybody's doing a nice even 75 all together, right? Right lane is the people doing 65. Middle lane is 70. Left lane is 75 with the occasional 65 in that's causing everybody to get mad at them, you know, holding them. Yes, okay, we're all on the same page. <laughs> right now, right now, I've got to tell you, there are couples here, I just noticed, and they're going, right? Okay, that's not what I'm asking for, all right? Just, just, just with me. So, so what happened? We're riding along, and up ahead, I see blue lights. Now, my first thought, this is what I tell my wife, the lights are on because he's pulled somebody over. He's not going to come after us. That shows my thinking, right? But what happens, what happens, right? Everyone slows down. Everyone slows down. Now, is that because suddenly there's this mass realization that, you know what? Speeding is dangerous to me, the occupants of my car, and the people around me. I should go 62. Is that what happens? No, right? What is it? It's the fear of the blue lights. It's the fear of police. Now, you may say, no, Bob, how do you know it's not a mass realization of, our, of how a good citizen should drive? Here's why. Because as soon as he's out of sight, we all go back up and here we go, right? It's just a temporary thing. No one's been changed by that, right? Their behavior has been changed momentarily because of fear, fear. That's it. Fear works that way. But you know what? After having five kids, I'm telling you this, it doesn't change their hearts. It doesn't change their hearts. They don't change from the inside because of fear. And that's what we need. That's what we want. So peace can come through fear, but it doesn't make people better people. But Jesus now, here, he's offering peace from fear. This is what makes it so different. This is what makes it revolutionary. There's nothing like this. Every other religion holds the hammer over people's head to get them to behave. Jesus says, no, I want you to be free from that. Perfect love casts out fear. I want you to have peace from fear. Jesus offers this peace, not by power, but by sacrifice. Not through a show of strength, but through a show of service. Jesus showed his power by giving up power. So let me give you three quick ideas about peace. First of all, I want you to see something. It is unfolding. It is, it is a process. It's progressive. He said in verse 29, I've told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. What is he telling them? We've talked about this a bunch of times. He said this over and over to them. You're not getting it now. That's okay. You will get it later. It will dawn on you more and more as you see things unfold. 
Okay, so that's a very important thing. The growth in Christ is a process. We have to remember that. And also peace is a recurring theme because fear is a recurring thing. He constantly is telling them, do not be afraid. Do not be anxious. He says, there's peace available to you. It's kind of like a sunrise, right? If you've ever, it's only happened to me like three times in my life that I've gotten up for the sunrise. But one time, our family was at the beach and this house had, you know, a widow's walk or a crow's nest, whatever they call it, that's at the very top on top of the roof. And, uh, and, and somebody said, let's go up and see, see the sunrise. My family, okay, there's five kids, you know, there's three in-laws, there's, there's now three, three grandkids, right? And we're all like, yes, let's get up and watch the sunrise. I get up in the morning while it's dark. I walk up there. There's no one there. None of them showed up. One stumbled up like an hour. Did I miss it? Sun's up there, pal, right? It's 10 o'clock in the morning. Right, so, and, and what happens if you ever, it's beautiful. It is beautiful, but it's early. There's this glow on the horizon. It's just a glow. And then the glow gets bigger and brighter and then you start to see the sun peek up over the horizon and it gets bright and suddenly the bright light of day is there. It's a progressive thing. This is how it unfolds. It's progressive. And too many of us, we live ignorant of what we have in Christ, not understanding the fullness of what he wants to give us, not experiencing the peace that he has for us. I love history. Oh, is that news to you guys? I love history. And, and uh, this, a lot of people know, but the interesting thing to me was that the, in the War of 1812, the Battle of New Orleans was fought after the Treaty of Ghent, the Treaty for Peace had been signed. So they signed the Treaty for Peace, but the word had not gotten to New Orleans. And so the British attacked, and the Americans, you know, the, this whole battle, thousands of people died after peace had been signed. Why? Because they didn't know yet. They hadn't heard. And that's our problem sometimes as believers. We, we don't know it. We don't, experience, we, don't, we don't have it. We don't sense it. And so we live like it's not there. And Jesus says, I have this peace for you. There's a peace available. But if, if we're still at war and we're still living in fear, we haven't grasped it yet. And we have to ask ourselves sometimes, am I in constant fear? Is there anxiety over losing control or comfort or success? Is or is peace growing in my life? Because it should be a process. It's unfolding. Secondly, it's personal. Jesus says, my peace I give you. It's personal. It doesn't mean he fixes all our problems the way we want. It means he offers his peace in the midst of our problems. You know, Jesus doesn't say to the disciples, look, I can see that everything I've been talking about is distressing you. Okay, I'll change the plan so it won't bother you so much. I, I'm not going to go to the cross because I can tell the pain that that would be for you, the pain through Friday, the horribleness of Saturday will be too much for you. I'm not going to do it. No, he doesn't say that, obviously, because, because they have to go through that to get to the resurrection. They have to go through that to get to the resurrection. His presence is where the peace is. It's relational and it's personal. Now, we understand this. We understand this concept intuitively if you think about it, right? I can remember when our kids were little one time and we, it was a big thunderstorm. 
And uh, my wife and I, we, for a while, we had this goofy waterbed. We had this big king-size waterbed. We thought it was the greatest thing in the world until it sprung a leak. And uh, so the kids, all of a sudden, the kids start straggling into our room because of this. It was really, it was a good one. I, I loved it, but they didn't, they didn't like it. And I felt like Maria, you know, Von Trapp in The Sound of Music, right? All these kids coming in and jumping into the bed, and I'm like, hello, Hansel and Gretel and Kurt and Bert and Steezy and Wheezy and Breezy, whatever your names are. Whatever their names were, you know, they all come piling in. And that's what it felt like. They all come in, and it was great. Why? Because once they got in bed with us, they were okay. Every once in a while, they go, oh, like that, and then they'd hug us. And when you're a parent, that's the greatest thing in the world right there. When your little kid hugs you because they're afraid, you're like, Yeah. Dad's got it, man. I'll go out there and calm that storm <laughs> in a minute, maybe. So our presence was peace to our kids. It couldn't be just anybody's presence. No babysitter would have quite done. Our presence was what they needed. It's relational. After the, after the resurrection, where are the disciples? They're in a room with the doors locked, and they're in fear for their lives. And Jesus walks in and says, peace be upon you. My peace. Why? Because you need me for peace. Peace was available amidst all their fears. Their fears of the authorities, their fear of failure, their fear that the promise of the kingdom was gone, their fear that Jesus and God had abandoned them, had forgotten them, their fear that Jesus had let them down, or even worse, their fear that they had let Jesus down all those fears that they're feeling that made them lock doors and huddle alone in a room because they were frightened. And Jesus walks in and the first thing he says is, peace, peace. I give you my peace. My presence is your peace. So it's unfolding, it's progressive, it's personal, it's a relational thing, it's a presence. And third, it's costly. He said, you have heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me and you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. See, Jesus here is correcting them a little bit. He's saying, he's saying to them, if you loved me, you would have been glad that I was returning to my Father. He's kind of opening their eyes to this. It's going to be incredibly costly for him. But he is also saying to them, do you want what's best for me or do you want what's best for you? And what they couldn't understand is it was going to be best for everyone. They didn't understand the sacrifice that was involved, how costly it would be. But we understand this. We understand that personal and relational issues are costly. I struggled with uh, illustrations this time. I feel like I just keep talking about me, and that's not necessarily a good thing. But here's, I, I can't, this is where it's close to my heart. When my daughter Holly was 16, she got lung cancer. And she lost a lung. And, and, and I can remember praying, God, I'll take it. Don't do this to her. Her greatest joy is singing. Give it to me. I'll take it. Why? That's why I shouldn't use personal illustrations. Why? Because every parent here knows that feeling. You would do that because you love them. Because you love your children, you would take it in a heartbeat. You'd take it. True love sees that the world does not revolve around your own personal emotional fulfillment and well-being. In fact, true love, you experience fulfillment in the fulfillment of another. 
You get great joy in the joy of another. That's what true love is. You invest in another's joy. You find happiness in another's happiness. That is why, since we have been married, my wife has watched with me, Monty Python, the Marx Brothers, the Three Stooges, Star Trek, Star Wars, Marvel movies, Lord of the Rings. She's watched those with me. That is why she happily will go into, with me into a motorcycle dealership and stand nicely while I just walk around and drool over motorcycles. She will do that. That is why she will happily stop at every historical marker that I see. And it works, I mean, I happily will go with her for long walks on the beach, even though I still struggle with the idea of if there's waves, why are we not in them? Why are we walking in the sand? That's where the fun is. But I get great joy in her joy. That's why I watch Sense and Sensibilities. That's why I watch Pride and Prejudice. That's why I watch the Newsies. And on and on and on, right? You get joy that way. Producing, putting each other first produces joy and love. That's the way it is with a personal relationship. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are unhappy, you are fearful, you're anxious because you're putting the wrong things first. Jesus is not saying, he tells them, look at me. We've seen this over and over in here. He tells them, see me, look at me, see me for who I am. He's not saying that because he needs our approval. He doesn't, he's not saying that because he needs our worship. He, he's not saying that because he needs us to glorify him. He's saying that because it's in him that we find true peace and true joy. And to prove that he doesn't need it, need it, this is what he did. He put us first. He put us first because he didn't need it from us. We do that all the time with our kids. We do that all the time with people that we love. In a true relationship of love, you will pour yourself into the joy and well-being of another person. It is the same thing with peace. If we pray, God, please give me this job, thinking that this job will give me peace, as soon as the job is threatened, the peace is gone. It's the same thing with anything that we think will bring us peace or happiness. Once it's gone, you're back in the storm. But when we come to Jesus with our fears and struggles and our anxieties, he says he brings peace. All right, so we need peace. So what is the peace? Now, living in the peace of Christ. I wish I could give you just three things. I say, you automatically do this, this, and you will automatically be a peaceful person for the rest of your life through thick and thin, through hell and high water, whatever it is, you will be peaceful if you do these three things. That's not true because it is a process. You know, it is something that, that we go through over time, but it does happen. So living in the peace of Christ, first thing to remember is the spirit is key here. He was talking about just, just previously, we can't see, we, we, we take chunks, but we don't want to forget the chunk. The previous chunk of scripture we looked at last week was about the spirit and how key the spirit is in this. How he works, he teaches us, he reminds us. The spirit teaches and points to Jesus. He gets us to focus on Jesus because that's where the peace is. The Spirit reminds us of the things we know. The Spirit points us to the power of the Word of God. The Word illuminates Jesus and glorifies Him and shows Him to us. That's why it's so important, Paul says, not to quench the Spirit, not to push the Spirit aside, not to ignore the Spirit. That word quench can actually mean strangle. So nothing comes out. 
He says, don't, don't do that. That's why the Spirit is so important. Remember that it's a process. We just talked about that. I just wanted to remind you. When, you, we, when we come to know Christ, we don't automatically become perfect people in all our actions and deeds. It's a process. It's the same thing with peace and understanding it and our ability to trust in Jesus and rest in him. Third is peace is often connected with authority. This is interesting. Isaiah tells us that he is the prince of peace, or he is prince, peace, as some translators look at it. Colossians 3 says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. That's authority. Philippians 4 says, let the peace of God guard your heart. That's authority. We have to yield to Jesus. We have to place ourselves under his authority. He has the power and authority to give peace. He endured for us so that we could have his peace and we would be able to endure. Third thing, fourth thing to remember is that God is in control. These are times for the disciples that are scary, they're stressful, they're tragic. We go through those times too. It's easy to take our eyes off Jesus and to forget that he's in control. And in verse 27, he talks about the role, before verse 27, he talks about the uh, role of the Holy Spirit, and then he talks about he's going to remind you of what I had said. And Jesus says here, he says, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. But he comes so that the world may learn that I I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying, I'm in control. I'm in control. Come now, let us leave. Where are we going? We're going to where the prince of this world is. We're going to walk to the evil, not away. He's in control. He says so many times, no one, no one takes my life from me. I lay down my life. The evil one's coming, he says, and he wants to do to me, but it's going to be exactly the opposite of what he thinks will happen. The world will see that I love the Father, and the Father, and, and I do what he wants. It's interesting, he says he has no hold on me. Literally, it means he's got nothing on me. What does that mean? There is no charge that he can bring against me. I have lived the perfect life. I have not sinned. So he's got nothing on me. He says to the disciples and he says to us, your world is falling apart. You're confused, you're doubtful, you're depressed, you're in despair. But just wait, I'm in control There's much more going on than you can see. And my peace is here for you. Let me just add a couple of things. This morning, I was just thinking about this and praying about it, and a couple of things came to my mind. So I just want to mention a few things about peace that's not on this, because I just threw this together at the last second. Um, The definition of peace is this confidence, this trust we have that God is wise and he is in control. How do we cultivate peace? We become thankful people. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And what's interesting is, he says, thanksgiving before requests. That's an interesting thought. Thanking God for answering before I even mention that he's, what he's, I'm going to ask him. He says, I want you to learn to be thankful people. Secondly, I want you to learn to be thinking people. Paul wrote, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think on such things. Thinking about what the Bible says about you, what the Bible says about God, what the Bible says about 
this world. What does that do? That teaches us, we learn, we listen to ourselves at times. Finally, one of the things we need to do is loving, be loving, love the right things. We tend to love things that can change, and so our love changes. God says, love the things that can't change. Look at what's most important in your life. I think about it this way. You can either talk to your heart or you can listen to your heart. Because your heart's where worries can start. And tomorrow your heart is gonna start worrying. Maybe this afternoon, some worries are gonna intercede into your life. Maybe right now, there's some things you go, oh, I can't keep my, uh And so you need to talk to yourself. One is you can, you can sit and listen, you can hold your oh, this sounds terrible. Or David showed us this in, in Psalm 42. He said, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. What's happening? David is talking to himself. He's saying, why are you so upset? Think about it. Why are you so upset? Analyze why. Now put your trust in God. Think about this. And man, this is, I know this is old news to a lot of you. Whenever you're frustrated, whenever you're irritated, whenever you are angry, it is because there is something you think you deserve that you're not getting. This is 100% all the time. For a person first shared this with me about 20 years ago, and I've spent all this so much time trying to think of an exception to the rule. But you think about it, frustrated, irritated, angry. Why are you that way? Because something you want, something you think you need, something you desire is being denied you. I, I, when, our kids were, <laughs> when our kids were little, um, I was working with youth, had a particularly difficult day. I knew it was going to be a difficult day. And so I geared up for it and got ready. Spent a tough day dealing with issues with people and crying and praying and all kinds of things. And the whole day, just thinking, I can't wait to get home. I can't wait to get home. My kids are going to run up. They're going to hug my knee. They're going to go, Daddy's home. Daddy's home. And I'm going to kiss my wife. And then we're going to wrestle on the floor with the boys and the girls. I'm going have a great time. And then we're going to have dinner. It's going to be a great dinner. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read a little story from, you know, the book of a famous life of a man. The kids are all going to listen. They're going to ask good questions. And they're going to want to live for Jesus. And we're going to be the greatest Christian family in the world. That's what I was looking forward to. Right? So tough day, driving home. Man, I can't wait. Mwah. Hugs. Uh, this is going to be great. Get there. My wife's on the front step. Oh, even better. She's waiting for me. This is going to be the greatest recorded his kiss in history, right? I get up. I say, hey, babe, it's so great to see you. I've been looking forward to this. She goes, give me the car keys. Okay, here. She starts walking towards the car. Where are you going? I don't know. She just keeps walking. When will you be back? I don't know. She got in the car and drove away. And I looked in that house and I opened the door. And I mean, this is, it was such a weird thing. My kids line themselves up like, like a police line. They line themselves up. I came in the corner. I said, what happened? And they just started, <laughs> you know, and they're just crying. And I was, I, it, I was so angry. I suddenly realized I'm about to do something that I will regret. 
And so I said, go to your rooms while I think of something horrible to do to all of you, right? So they went to their rooms and I sat down and I said, God, why? What happened to me? Why am I so angry? I didn't get what I wanted. I didn't get the perfect Christian family. I didn't get hugs and kisses. I didn't get wrestling. I didn't get a good meal. I didn't get a good meal. That's for I didn't get a good meal. I mean, I'm like in there making peanut butter and jelly because my wife didn't come up. And I'm, I did, we weren't, it just didn't work. I'm so mad. Okay, anytime. It can be big things. It can be little things. You ever, ever wondered why sometimes if somebody cuts you off, you get so angry at times? Why? Because you didn't get what you wanted. And this is true all the time. This is true all the time. And that's when we have to talk to ourselves. Why are you so angry? Why are you so downcast? Oh, my soul. What's the point? Get to the bottom of it. See, what David is doing here, he's not just asking goofy questions. David is analyzing himself. Why am I doing this? What is wrong with me? Why am I so upset? This is perfect for us. We talk to ourselves. And then, then David says, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior, my God. He says, this is who God is. This is who I am. I've got to understand this. This helps me understand and live with this. You notice, here's the thing. And this is true in so many of the Psalms. David prays about stuff. We don't necessarily see it get reconciled. But he just starts saying, I got to focus on God. I got to focus on God. There's not always a happy ending. That's life, right? That's life. We don't always get happy fairy tale endings. But if we can focus on Jesus, if we can keep our thoughts on him, then we know he's in control. He's got this. I don't understand it. This seems horrible. I'm angry, God. I'm angry at you, God. And we see that in the Psalms too. And yet I recenter myself. Lord, I know you're in control, but I hate this. I don't understand this. That was, you know, you think that's probably where some of the disciples may have been on Saturday. Jesus is dead. There is no hope. God, I hate this. There's no hope. What are you doing? And David teaches us, God teaches us, stop, recenter, think about it. Why am I upset? Okay, where's God in this? How can I talk? To, and we talk to him and to ourselves, all right? Just things to help us remember. We need to be, learn to thank, learn to think, and learn to love. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, that it is true. Help us, help us, Lord, to uh, apply it to ourselves. Help us to learn to speak it to ourselves, to remind ourselves of what is true, of who you are, who we are, and what our relationship is with you. God, help us to understand there's nothing in this whole world that could touch, could touch the privilege of being a son or a daughter of the king of the universe. And that's the privilege you've given us. Help us to understand that. Help us to live it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.